let's get into the boat and go. And that's simply what they did. They got into the boat. They pushed off. This was a normal thing, as I told you before. Many of these men were experienced fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. There was really nothing to this. So what did they do? Well, they got in with this sort of inherent promise of Jesus that they would cross over to the other side of the lake From where their final destination is later on in this chapter, we gather that they're going sort of eastward across the Sea of Galilee. So, verse 23 tells us that as they sailed, he fell asleep. You know, there's a few things about that are just so touching to me to think about Jesus sleeping in this boat. Number one, it tells me that Jesus needed to sleep. He wasn't Superman. This was a man just like you and I who grew tired and exhausted and needed rest. Some of you feel that right now. At the end of a day, here you are, you're trying to sit down and pay attention at a Bible study. And can I tell you, God bless you. God bless you for coming, even though some of you may be tired from a long day. And I have to say, I don't begrudge you that at all. If I see some people stifle a few yawns or maybe fight a little bit, of there, listen, I'm glad you're here. I remember something I read from Charles Spurgeon once that I'll never forget in regard to that. He talked about people coming to the midweek meeting and being tired in the evening. He said, I'd rather have you come and get half a meal rather than none. That's exactly how I feel. Look, it's much better than you sitting home and watching TV or something, especially if the Giants are winning a World Series game. Oh, it just gets me. I don't want to know the score. Okay, in any regard, Jesus grew tired just like any of us. So he needed to sleep, but isn't it also wonderful that Jesus just felt the peace to be able to sleep? You know, he had a peaceful conscience. I wonder if nobody ever slept so sweetly as Jesus did. Just without any fear, without any anxiety, with just his perpetual trust in God, there was a sweetness about the sleep of Jesus. So as they sailed, he fell asleep. And then what happened? Verse 23, a windstorm came down upon the lake. Uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee is well known for the sudden, very disruptive storms that come upon it. And on a couple of Israel trips that I've been out there, I've been out on the Sea of Galilee when a sudden storm has come, and it's a little bit scary. The wind comes down very quickly. There can be sudden rains and waves coming up, and so this, this isn't uncommon at all. So what happens? Verse 24. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So you have the scene fixed in your mind. Here is Jesus sleeping in the boat. He's at rest. He's at peace. Even though the waves are rocking the boat, even though the wind is howling, spray is coming up, it's a dangerous scene that the disciples themselves are threatened. They feel very dicey in this situation. Jesus is at perfect peace. He's asleep until he's suddenly jostled awake by the disciples who say, Master, Master, we are perishing. What's kind of interesting, I wonder exactly what they meant by the we. I wonder if they meant We are perishing. You seem to be doing pretty fine, Jesus, but we are perishing. Or I wonder if they meant in the great big collective we. We all are perishing in this boat, Jesus. If you want to save your own skin, you better get up and do something. They were panicked. 
Look, this is our nature, isn't it? How often it is people feel that the boat is going down even though Jesus is on it. Friends, I I look at the state of Christianity, especially in the Western world, and I'll agree that there's a lot to be discouraged about. It's pretty easy to write a book and to get it published if you make it just very critical of the church because there's a lot to criticize about the church. And I get a lot of books that just or see them in magazines or on the internet or whatever, you know, critical about this. And listen, I'll freely admit, there is a lot to criticize and challenge about the church today. But you know what? I have an unshakable confidence in God's work among his people. You know what? Jesus is on the boat. It's not going down. And, And if Jesus seems to be asleep, it's only because everything's fine and his presence there will protect us. In any regard, they woke Jesus up. And what did he do? I love it in verse 24. He arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. Now, please notice, he didn't do this. He didn't just stand up and say, all right, uh, quiet down now. He rebuked it as if it were a person. This is the same terminology that is used of Jesus' confrontations with demonic spirits. There are many people who believe especially because the intended destination of this boat and what's going to happen when Jesus gets off of this boat, that this was more than just a regular storm that came upon the Sea of Galilee. Rather, this was a specifically targeted satanic strategy to do something against God's Messiah. So what did Jesus do? He didn't just, you know, I don't know, turn off the wind. He rebuked it. He saw that there was something spiritual, something opposing in it. He rebuked the wind and the raging of the water as only the Son of God can. I I heard a great story. It's not my story. Uh, A gentleman, some of you may know, Gail Irwin told me the story, that one time he led an Israel tour with a bunch of students. And there they were out on the uh, Sea of Galilee, and wouldn't you know, a big storm comes up. The wind is howling, the rain is pelting, the ship is rocking. You know, it seems dangerous. So what do you think one of the students decided to do? The boat's chugging along with its motors, chug, 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 against the wind, you know, there it goes through the water. One of the students gets up and he says very dramatically, peace, be still. And the moment he said it, the engines cut out. You know, you almost could, no, not that peace be still. I want the engines to run. I want the, but you know, that's about man's best effort, isn't it? We can cut the engines, but we can't stop the wind. Listen, what we're going to talk about Jesus doing in these two things that we see this evening, the stilling of the storm and this encounter with the demon-possessed man, you have to understand we're dealing with something that many people have a difficult time with today. It's the supernatural. We're talking about Jesus being able to do something that you can't quantify in a laboratory, that you can't demonstrate through statistics. We're talking about Jesus having supernatural power and encountering supernatural things that many people today just don't want to deal with. They think that that day is past. They think, listen, we live in a new day, in a new age. We have electric lights and we have forced air conditioning and we have computers for heaven's sakes. What do we have to believe in demonic spirits and in in forces in this world and in people who can command the winds and the waves? But ladies and gentlemen, because we take the Bible to be a true book, 
We believe in these things. So Jesus said, peace, be still. It instantly stopped. And then what did Jesus say? I think it's amazing what he says in verse 25. Did you notice it? He did not say, wow, what a storm. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't say, why did you guys even wake me up? He looked at his disciples and he said, where is your faith? It's almost like this. The storm didn't bother Jesus. The lack of faith in his disciples did. It's as if Jesus could stifle the storm with a yawn. But then he gets serious and earnest. And he says, disciples, where is your faith? I'm not worried about a storm. That can never bring me down. But let me tell you something. Your lack of faith, that disturbs us. And of course, we see a powerful metaphor here for our own walk with God. The idea that difficult circumstances, storms, so to speak, in our life, they are not the evidence of unbelief. No, you can be exactly in God's will for your life and be in the midst of a tremendous storm. But the whole idea is faith will be demonstrated by how you deal with that storm. And the disciples at that moment had a choice to make. Are we going to trust in the presence of Jesus with us in the boat, even though he seems to be sleeping? Or are we going to panic and with unbelief act as if Jesus doesn't care? And that's exactly what they did. Therefore, Jesus asked that question. I know there's so many people, they get so upset about the storm. Listen, I just wonder if Jesus isn't more concerned about your faith in the midst of the storm than he is the storm itself. And oftentimes this is why Jesus, to some degree or another, may allow such a storm. Matter of fact, look at their reaction. Did you see it in verse 25? And they were afraid and marveled. You see, they should have been completely at peace. The stormy sea of Galilee goes from craziness to calm in an instant. Rolling waves instantly glass off. The wind stops. All that spray just drops right down back into the lake. But now they were really afraid. Because now they recognize more than they had just a moment before that they were in the presence of deity. They were in the presence of of Yahweh himself, that there weren't prophets who could do this, that there weren't messengers of God as in previous ages, as, ages I should say, but rather they were in the presence of the unique Son of God, and that stirred a deep awe within themselves. I want you to think about something. In the span of just a few moments, the disciples saw the complete humanity of Jesus. Can you think of anything that more powerfully expresses the humanity of Jesus than to see him sleeping on the boat? That's the humanity of Jesus. And right up next to the humanity of Jesus, what do they see? They see the power of his deity, side by side, totally compatible, there together, fully man and fully God. And when they saw it, it made them full of awe. Well, to coin a phrase, They hadn't seen anything yet. If they were blown away by that, just wait till they get to the next destination here. Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. Okay, let the movie run in your mind as we read this together. 
And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out. He fell down before him. And with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, commanded the, he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and when he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. What an encounter! Jesus sails, presumably from somewhere on either the northern or the western side of the Sea of Galilee, over to the area of the Gadarenes, which was somewhere on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. As he comes over into this area of the Galilee, which was predominantly Gentile, this side of the Sea of Galilee was populated by mostly Gentile villages and cities. He comes over to this area, he steps off the boat, and what happens? A screaming, crazy, demon-possessed man comes right to him on the shore. Look at what it says there in verse 27. There met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. Now, one thing I want you to see right up front, Jesus did not go out hunting this man. I just want to caution you. Nowhere in the Bible do we seem to have this profile of Jesus being the demon hunter. Sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? No, Jesus wasn't some kind of demon hunter. He went about his ministry, and when the demonic opposed him, he gave it short shrift. But he was doing his ministry. He got off the boat, and this crazy, demon-possessed man comes to him. And then what happens? Well, what unfolds is the classic description of a demon-possessed person that we find in the Scriptures. I want you to think about this carefully. Well, maybe I should take a step back. I wonder. I wonder if there's people here tonight You wouldn't show it because you're too polite. But inside, you're really raising an eyebrow right now. And and you're saying to yourself, oh boy, here comes that devil stuff again. I don't believe you for being skeptical. We live in a skeptical age. We live in an age where the idea of the supernatural and the reality of the spiritual realm is mocked and doubted. As I said before, we sort of glory ourselves in living in a scientific age where where you don't explain things anymore by saying, oh, a devil did this and an angel did that. You know, we have cause and effect and science and we understand it. And might I say, I'm very grateful that we live in a scientific age. I'm happy for the blessings of that. But I realize that it comes with a huge baggage in the mentality that we bring to the world. And people find it so hard to believe in the reality of the supernatural and in the spiritual. But I'll just lay it out flat for you. The Bible says that there are fallen, malevolent, demonic spirits that hate you and hate God. And as much as they're able to, they want to do ill and make mischief in this world. 
I don't want to shock anybody. I don't want to act, you know, be all Mr. Melodramatic about this. But if I could say it, I'll say right now in our gathering this evening, there are, in the spiritual realm around us right now, there are angelic beings and there are fallen angelic beings. There are angels and there are demons in our midst right now. And I hope to, to, to Jesus in heaven, I hope that the angels are pleased because we're honoring God. And I hope that the demons are very frustrated. They're frustrated that people are here giving attention to the word of God. But these beings, they exist. And just because as a culture, as a society in whole, we feel, well, we've moved well beyond all that. It doesn't mean that it stops happening. It doesn't mean that it stops existing. Now, that's on the one side. On the other side, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. There is a lot of silly superstition about the demonic world among Christians today. And some of it just needs to be spoken about very frankly. There are people who think that the devil does this and the devil does that. And there are some people who think that nothing is ever due to the world or to the flesh, but it's all the devil's fault, the devil and his workers. Well, it's not. You can't blame everything on the devil. The, the, the Bible never presents a demonic attack as the path to sanctification. It says that you've got to deal with your own sinful flesh and inclinations and desires. Nevertheless, it tells us that we have these real spiritual enemies that we have to contend against. But if we're talking about demonic possession, demonic possession, I want you to understand, this right here is the only profile of a demon-possessed person that we have in the New Testament. I'm not trying to say that every demon-possessed person looks just like this gathering demoniac looked like. But what I'm saying is the Bible only gives us one description of what a demonic person really looks like, what they were like in their character, in their personality, in the, in the things that they showed in their life. And this is the profile right here. And, and, and I, can't, I guess what I'm trying to say is this is that if there's a young man who has trouble with lustful thoughts and desires, I don't think you need to cast a demon of lust out of him. I I, I don't think that's fruitful. I mean, I look at a person who's demon-possessed, and these are the qualities of that person. Again, I'm not trying to say that it has to fit every checklist, but at least in general, this is what it looks like. Instead of what I think is a diversionary thing of so it is called casting a demon of lust out of a person, I would address that person's sinful flesh and desires and, and deal with it with good old sanctification. Now, in any regard, let's look at this. Let's look at the profile of this man. Number one, verse 27 says that this man had been demon-possessed for a long time. Got that? For a long time he had been possessed. Number two, verse 27 says that the man wore no clothes and that he lived more like a wild animal than a human being. He didn't live in a house. He was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Do you get this idea? That, that the demons that inhabited this man's body were like vandals, were like graffiti artists. They wanted to deface the image of God within this man. They wanted to make him as little like a human being as he could be, and as much like a base animal. It's like they hated anything in this man that looked like the image of God. And so they said, let's try to make him more like an like a animal, like a dog that would inhabit the wilderness. Thirdly, look at this. It says 
that the man lived among the decaying and the dead, contrary to Jewish law and to human instinct. Verse 27 says that he lived in the tombs. There's something wrong with a man who lives in the tombs. That's not right. I mean, according to Jewish law, that was horrific. But even more so, just common human decency says, no, the living should not live among the dead. Next we see that the man, verse 29, had supernatural strength. It says that he broke bonds. Ladies and gentlemen, this man was filled with demons, and they did something to him that, that honestly I can't fully explain. I mean, maybe there's some biological, physiological, uh, maybe, I don't know, I know this is just sound crazy talk, but I'm, I'll talk crazy. Maybe, maybe the demons can increase adrenaline production in the man or something. I don't really know. But however it worked, the man had supernatural strength. He could break chains. And then next, I want you to look at a couple things that are in Mark chapter 5. We'll put the verses up on the PowerPoint. It says that the man was tormented in self-destruction, that he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Can you picture the horror and the degrading character of this man's life? He's tormented. He's crying out. He's cutting himself with stones. He hates himself so badly, and the demons are driving himself to this self-destructive impulse. And then finally, I'll point this out. Mark 5, verse 4 says that he had uncontrollable behavior. It says, neither could anyone tame him. So you put the whole picture together, and you look at this poor, pitiful man who lived among the tombs. Let me say this, and I... I want to say this strongly but gently because there are people who have different opinions of this in the Christian community. And they're my brothers. They're my sisters. I don't want to treat them as if they're ignorant or they're unspiritual. But I'll be straight with you. I think there's a lot of bad teaching about this. I believe there's Christians who think that the Holy Spirit inhabits someone in a similar way to the way that this demonic spirit inhabited this man. That the Holy Spirit, if he comes upon you, he'll make you do weird and uncontrollable stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, that is more akin to demonic possession than to truly being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They think that the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon a person, that he overwhelms the operations of someone's body and that he makes them do strange and grotesque things. Ladies and gentlemen, that's more the mark of demonic spirits. I'm not trying to say that people who do such things are demon possessed. I'm just saying that it's more after the pattern of what happens in demon possession than when somebody is filled with the Spirit. It says right here that this man was driven by the demon. And the idea there is like a horse is driven or ridden by a rider. Well, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. But let me tell you this. We can be sure that this man didn't start out this way. You see, at one time, this man lived among other people in the village. But at some point, his own irrational and wild behavior convinced the villagers that he was demon-possessed or maybe perhaps at least insane. So what did they do? 
They bound him with chains to keep him from hurting others and maybe from hurting himself. But what did he do? He broke the chains again and again. So they drove him out of the city or the village. And there he lived in the cemetery. He lived as a madman among the tombs. And he hurt the only person he could himself. This shows you how much demons hate humanity. Now, let me explain something to you as to why demons hate humanity. It might sound funny, but it's nothing personal. It's not so much you they hate, even though they don't like you. What they hate is that you're made in the image of God. And they hate God so much that they want to deface anything that has his image upon it. And they want to cover it over with as much grotesque, wild, crazy behavior to erase the image of God. So at that time and that place, this demon-possessed man met Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And what happened? Now, Luke sort of goes back and forth a little bit in these verses, but let me just tell you how it happened. Jesus gets off the boat. This crazy guy comes up to him and just, I don't know, he's just showing everything. He's all crazy and, you know, demon-possessed. And what does Jesus do? Jesus commands that the unclean spirit come out of the man. Verse 29 says that. Now, verse 29 puts it in the past tense. He commanded, but it tells you what Jesus did before. Jesus gets out of the boat, comes on the shore. The guy comes at him, and Jesus commands the evil spirit to come out of the man. Now, this is what I want you to notice. The evil spirit did not come out of the man immediately at that moment. Why? Well, I think because Jesus wanted to show a little something. So here he's going to show it. Verse 28 In response to Jesus' command, look at what happens in verse 28. The demons answer back, what have I to do with you? And then they say, I beg you, do not torment me. This was the demonic spirit within the possessed man, not the man himself. The demon didn't want to leave the man. We can define demonic possession as when a demonic spirit resides in a person and at times they will exhibit their own personality through the personality of the host body. Demonic possession is a reality today, although I think we're faced with this line that we've got to guard against either ignoring demonic activity or overemphasizing supposed demonic activity. And we're not told specifically how a person becomes demon-possessed. The inference is, and all I can say it's an inference, is the inference is that it has to happen by some sort of invitation. That a person somehow invites demonic possession whether they know it or not. And I would think that most people who invite demonic possession aren't even aware that they're doing it. They think that they're just connecting with spirits. They they just think that they're connecting with another realm through the use of drugs. They just think that they're connecting with some, you know, astrological or tarot card or some uh, witchcraft or sorcery. To them, it may seem innocent, but to the demonic spirits, it's deadly earnest. And this is why things like superstitions and fortune-telling and some card harmless occult games and practices, spiritism, new age deception, magic, drug-taking, other things can all be open doors to the demonic and real demonic danger 
for possession. Now, oftentimes people will get involved in demonic things because for the first time in their life, they connect with something spiritual that's real. Don't be deceived, people. Just because it's real doesn't mean it's of God. There are real demonic spirits out there. And we can say that demons want to inhabit a body for the same reason that that a vandal wants a spray can or a violent man wants a gun. A body for a demon is a weapon that they can use in their attack against God. As I said before, they attack men because they hate the image of God within a man or a woman. And they have the same goal within Christians. Now, I think that it's a completely different statement what demons can potentially do against someone who is not a believer and what a demon can do against someone who is born again by the Spirit of God. I'll lay it out clearly, just so you know how I believe. And again, I know that there are people in the Christian world that disagree with me on it, but after all, I'm the one teaching this Bible study here this evening. I'll say it as plainly as I can. I do not believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed. There's several reasons why I believe so. I'll give you just a few. Number one, I believe that for a Christian, the Bible tells us that their body is the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. And I don't think Jesus sublets to demons. Secondly, and perhaps this one statement is to me the most overwhelming statement. The Bible tells us in the book of James, he says this to every believer. He says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is the promise to everybody who's in Jesus Christ. Now, that's not something you can say to a demon-possessed person. Could you just go up to this gathering demoniac and say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you? No. There's something so overwhelming and his own personality is so submerged in the overwhelming personality of that demon that he needs to be set free by some outside power or influence. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible tells us, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, I know that there's people who say, but what about, I don't know, man, I went to this meeting and they were casting demons out of Christians and it was crazy. All sorts of weird stuff was happening and it really seemed like demons were coming out of Christians. How do you explain that? I don't. Ladies and gentlemen, I freed myself a long time ago from having to try to explain every weird spiritual phenomenon. I don't know. I, I can't explain, you know, what some strange phenomenon, but I can read the Bible, and I can explain that. And I would rather do this. I would rather spend my life founded on the Scriptures and interpreting events in the light of Scripture than I would founded on events and interpreting Scripture in and light of events. Now, there is definitely a realm and an aspect in which a Christian can be demon-harassed, demon-troubled. I don't doubt that for a moment. But I don't believe that they can be possessed that their personality can be submerged under the dominating personality of a demon to the extent that they cannot simply resist the devil and he will flee from them. But this man was a different case, wasn't he? Matter of fact, notice this. This is a beautiful passage for believers. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. The demonic spirits were disarmed by Jesus' work on the cross. It says, 
having disarmed principalities and powers. That, those are like New Testament code words for demonic beings. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made us public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Do you know what the it is? Look over there. At the work Jesus did on the cross, he, what did he do? He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, number two, and he triumphed over them. That is the position from which Christians engage with and battle against uh, demonic spirits. We look at them and we say, okay, you're real. Okay, you're scary. But you know what? You're disarmed. Jesus triumphed over you. And you've been made a public spectacle. Guess what? We win and you lose. I'm not going to let you intimidate me. I'm not going to let you speak all this fear against me. No. Jesus Christ is Lord. And you lost at the cross. Just deal with it, devil. That's, that's the attitude that the Christian comes forth with. One more thing, or a couple more things. First of all, notice what the demon said, verse 28. I beg you, do not torment me. Oh, poor demon. He doesn't want to be troubled. Isn't there an unbelievable irony in that statement? That demon did nothing but torment that man. Nothing. That man cut himself. He cried out. He lived in the tombs. He was naked. He was crazy. He, all these things. He did nothing but torment that man. And what does the demon say? Oh, please don't torment me. Let me tell you, Jesus was just about to torment that guy. Okay, one other thing, and this is important. One other thing, I keep saying that until verse 3. He says, the demon spoke to him and he said, Jesus, son of the most high God. I know it may be different in some of your translations, but I'm just reading from my translation, the New King James Version. The demons addressed Jesus as Jesus, Son of the Most High God. That's what the demons said in response. So I want you to get the picture again. Jesus gets off the boat. Demon-possessed man runs at him. Jesus looks off him and goes, I command you to flee. The demons, get out of that guy. I command you to flee. What do the demons reply? The demons reply, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, if anybody was looking at this at the time, they would have gone, oh, as soon as the demons said that. In that day, there were Jewish exorcists who did their business. And they they wrote down their, their superstitions, their practices. And in the world of Jewish exorcism at that time, the key to casting out a demon was to know the demon's name. If you knew the name of your spiritual opponent, you had the upper hand. So do you see what the demons are doing? The demons are firing a shot back at Jesus. We know you. You're Jesus, son of the most high God. If there were onlookers who knew the Jewish playbook for exorcism, they would have gasped. they go, oh, the demons have the upper hand. They know who Jesus is, and Jesus doesn't know their name. Because according to their customs, you cannot cast out that demon until you knew its name. But the demons see to know Jesus' name. It's like, oh, man, they fired a shot back at him. What is Jesus going to do? Here we go. Verse 30. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons entered him. Oh, this is so good. Okay, they fire a shot at Jesus. We know your name. 
We own you, Jesus. We're going to get you, Jesus. What does Jesus answer back with? What's your name? And what do they reply? Legion. Legion. Is Legion a name? It's not a name. It's a description. It's like saying battalion is our name. It's a description of a bunch of troops. Do you see what those demons were doing? Number one, they were saying to Jesus, we're not going to tell you our name. Number two, they were saying, there's 6,000 of us in us. A Roman legion was made up of 6,000 men. Now, I don't think there were literally 6,000 men. Here's another principle. Demons are liars. So they were exaggerating. But this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to intimidate Jesus. The intimidation is this. We're not going to tell you our name, and there's a whole bunch of us. Isn't it ready for you to back down, Jesus? Say, I mean, isn't this great? Isn't the tension just rising here? What's Jesus going to do? He's going to whoop on him. Verse 31. And they begged him that, they would not, that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Okay, maybe I should pause right here. I feel really guilty. You know you can text in questions, right? We're going to do a little Q&A after this. We've got to remind people, but we want you to know. You can text in questions. There's a number somewhere that you can write in. I don't know what the number is. All right, so you got the scene? They answer back, and, well, uh, there it is right there. Text questions right there at the bottom. The demon says legion, and Jesus just says, get out. And the next thing the demons are saying is, okay, please don't send us to that place. Send us to another place. It's really fascinating. When he said legion, Jesus wasn't intimidated in the slightest. And I want you to notice something. Jesus did not need to know a name to cast them out. Did Jesus say in some, you know, elaborate way, thereby legion, I cast thee out. No, he just said, yeah, whatever, man, you're gone. And the next thing the demons are saying is, well, please, can we have any decision on where we're going? Can we have a little input into this decision? Verse 31 says that they begged him that they would not command him to go into the abyss. The demons inhabiting this man did not want to be imprisoned in the abyss, which appears to be the bottomless pit that's described in Revelation chapter 9. Apparently, I wish we knew more about it, but we don't. Apparently, it's some place of imprisonment for demonic spirits. You know what these demons did not want? They did not want to become inactive. Demons don't like to be inactive. I can't credit the devil for much, but I'll credit the devil for this. He's a hard worker, and he doesn't want to be put on the bench. He doesn't want to be put on the injured reserve list. He wants to be out there doing the work. And so to be made inactive was distasteful to these demons. So what did they say? They said, please cast us into the swine. And Jesus said, go ahead. So verse 33 says, the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. Now why? Why did Jesus allow this? I think there's a very interesting reason why Jesus did this so that everybody could see what these wicked demons wanted to do to the man. They were absolutely persuaded and dedicated to the goal of this man's destruction. They did to the pigs what they'd been trying to do to that man and had been doing to that man in little bits all of his life. And that man probably did not have much longer to live. 
They wanted to destroy him. They wanted to drown him. They wanted to take away his life. As Jesus commanded those demons to go into the swine, they instantly were filled with a self-destructive impulse, and they ran into the sea. Which, of course, gave birth to the very bad preacher joke about deviled ham. Do you get it? It's really bad. A bad preacher would use that joke, not me. The Bible tells us that the goal of Satan is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Think about it. He did all three. He stole those pigs from the people who owned them. He killed them by drowning them. And he destroyed them by even making their dead carcasses no good to anybody. That's what the devil wants to do. And he'll do it in any way that he can. He wanted everybody to know it. Now, what was the reaction of the man? Take a look at it here. Verse 34. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. Isn't that beautiful? And they were afraid. Then also, or excuse me, they also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the gatherings asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Listen, in these four verses are so many mind-blowing things that I have to go through them very quickly. First of all, did you notice how afraid the people were of the man once he was freed from his demonic possession? Now, wait a minute. Shouldn't they have been afraid of him when he was demon-possessed? Nah, that's normal. We're used to that. What they were afraid of was a man who was set free by the power of Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus united the whole city. Yay, doesn't Jesus want to unite the city? Yeah, verse 37, look. Then the whole multitude asked him to depart. That's verse 37. Jesus brought that whole city together And they had a prayer meeting because prayer is asking Jesus for something, right? They had a prayer meeting. They all came together, had a prayer meeting, and asked Jesus, please leave. You're too disruptive to the status quo. We'd rather have demon-possessed men and keep our pigs rather than lose any of our economic livelihood and have people delivered from the demons. They unified the whole multitude, but it was not in a good way. When people are more afraid of what Jesus will do in their lives than what Satan will do at the moment, they often push Jesus away. And you want to know the scary thing? Jesus left, didn't he? You, know, you almost would have thought Jesus would say, no way, I'm staying here the most. He said, fine, you don't want me here? I'll go. I'll go to a place that does want me. All right, let's wrap up our section, verse 36, or 38, excuse me. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went this way and proclaimed throughout the whole city the great things that Jesus had done. Friends, did you notice that three times in just a few verses, he's called by this title, The Man from Whom the Demons Had Departed. That's his new name. And isn't that a great name? Hi, pleased to meet you. What's your name? I'm the man from whom the demons departed. It's like that becomes his testimony from ever on. Name, you know, hello, man from whom the demons departed. I mean, what a beautiful testimony. They're gone. Jesus set me free. 
But don't you find it interesting that the man wanted to go and follow Jesus? And you would think the story would say, and he followed Jesus and became one of the apostles and replaced Judas. Don't you think it should read like that? And Jesus said, no, you stay here and tell everybody. Isn't that beautiful? You know, listen, um, sometimes the godliest, most missional thing you can do is stay right at home and speak to the people that Jesus has put around you. You know, sometimes we go abroad to do missions things almost as a distraction because we're being unfaithful at home. This man heard from Jesus, no, you stay close to here and you tell the people who are around him. Jesus said no. I know I've set you free. I know you've got a great story to say, but I want you. And Jesus was doing one other thing with this man too. He also wanted him to know, you don't need me around for you to walk in your deliverance. I'll leave and you're still going to be demon free. And the man was. Well, one more thing. Look now at verse 39. Verse 39 says that Jesus told him, Tell what great things God has done. Did you see that in verse 39? And then what did the man do? What great things Jesus had done, which means that Jesus is God. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus didn't say, oh, don't say that about me. No way. He was telling everybody what great things God had done for him because Jesus is God. Listen, as much as anything, let's leave it with this tonight. Because Jesus is God, he is so much mightier than any demonic power. We put our focus on him and his great work on the cross for us. We may have to contend with demonic spirits, but we never have to fear them because Jesus Christ has won our victory. Father, we pray that you'd seal that within our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that uh, even though the battle is real, and I want to pray for people right now, Lord, they feel like they're in the fierceness of some spiritual battle. I pray for those people, God, and I ask that you would give them special strength, special deliverance for where they're at, and that you'd give them a special filling of your Holy Spirit. But Father, in the midst of all of that, as you do those things, give us a great confidence in the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, that we may have our focus on him, who can calm the storm and defeat any demon. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.